0: Far away, and uh, I'll I'll let you know as much as I, I can give you. That's hopefully not boring, and uh, <laughs> a few little stories in there thrown in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, um, why don't you start with what what exactly it is you do? Because uh, I was a little bit stumped at first, as well. So maybe just a, a rundown of yeah of what you do and yeah.
1: You know, actually, because I've been doing this for like twenty years it still confuses people what i do because it's it's such a weird um area of expertise that i have that's intertwined with so many different things that people usually end up scratching their heads when they walk away um, just because it's 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 just weird and strange but basically um I work for a defense contractor that specializes in mission and performance solutions for the military and uh, law enforcement agencies around the world and allied nations,
0: mm-hmm. specifically
1: North American uh, allied nations. So the company, they supply a range of defense training technologies, defense communication gear uh, and mission support services to those sectors. and they are pretty large companies, so they get involved with everything, including transportation. Um, so every time, you, you know, you pay to get on a, uh, a train or you're going to use the New York subway, that's a Cubic product. So I, I, I work for a company called Cubic Global Defense. So they basically touch everything. Um, these guys, um, I mean, they've been around for years. They actually provided um, uh, pilot training systems to the original Top Gun movie crew so that they can actually get used to uh, using these for that original movie, which I don't know when Top Gun came out back in the 80s, I guess it was. But um, as I said, the company is pretty huge, and they get involved with a lot of different sectors and divisions, and one of those little divisions, those offshoots, um, specializes in use of force law enforcement simulation trainers. And that's where I come in. So I'm like a little flea on the back of the big guy. So basically, uh, in a nutshell, a use of force simulator essentially is a simulator that depicts or reenacts uh, real-life situations that a police officer might encounter at some point in their career. And the way it works is that a projector will project a video scenario life-size on a large wall. And that trainee will stand in the middle of the room and interact dynamically with the scenario that's playing out in front of them. So a computer and sensor will monitor their actions and verbal commands. And then it will react accordingly by playing uh, a corresponding video clip. Um, Now that's all seamless to the eye because we've got a lot of AI working in the background. So as the trainee works his way through this video scenario, a story unfolds. Um, mm-hmm. And basically it's up to that student to uh, de-escalate the situation or escalate it. Mm-hmm. So the way I get involved is that I'm actually an instructor for that type of training. And I'm also an interactive content developer uh, for the simulator. So I'll basically go out Um, work with psychologists, with uh, police officers like RCMP at their training camp uh, in Regina. And we'll actually go through storyboards of things that have have actually happened or uh, issues that have cropped up. Uh, And they change every year. And then we'll go through, deconstruct that situation, and then I will try to recreate it in a simulated world using real actors and video and then we'll actually put it into the simulators and play it for the uh, the new recruits and students. So as they progress through those new scenarios, they can use their 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 real weapons uh, or their less lethal weapons like taser and chemical spray. But mostly, what we're trying to do is get the trainees to understand the use of de-escalation, um, trying to talk. Down a situation, try to bring it to some ca- uh, calm and normality. Um, so it, it can actually get quite complicated when you start to take that part to the next degree, because you've got a numerous different types of scenarios that can that can take place in, in these types of simulated worlds. Like uh, there could be a domestic dispute, there could be um, a vehicle stop, um, there could be uh, a school shooter. Uh, there could be mental health scenarios so each one has to be tackled differently yeah and each one has its own sort of rules and protocols and what should be used um, to bring that situation under control um, so I don't know if that's complicated that answer um, or if that's given you a bit of a clearer understanding of, of what I do
0: no definitely it's um that's that's definitely giving me a clear picture. I have a lot of questions now that we've uh we've got the ball rolling though. Um so for anyone yep. anyone listening, the RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That was the only thing I thought might have thrown someone. If there's any Aussies listening that um d- don't know. <laughs> um Yeah, I, I like that you touched on um yeah, I got a lot of questions. So you were saying you touched on the fact that you work with psychologists. Um, Do you also work with counsellors as well? And do those psychologists and counsellors work with the trainees that you're training?
1: So I, per se, I work with these guys, the counsellors, mostly the the psychologists and the training instructors, um, because what they do, they'll obviously pull together the information from the counsellors and they'll, they'll act as a conduit themselves to provide the information that I need mm-hmm. um, to build up this, the training scenarios that we need to create. Otherwise, you have too many chefs uh, yeah. in the mix, yeah. too many cooks, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, and this is the issue with simulation. You can only recreate things as best as that conduit provides you with that information. You know, so if it's gone through three different channels, uh, it's been watered down a bit. So you're always trying to get the most direct point of contact to get the most realistic situation possible. Yeah, that comes on bases. Do you, Do you find and that it's a, it's a really tricky situation?
0: Yeah. Do you find that these de-escalation drills are effective in training uh, police recruits and other people that you train? Like, is it is it giving them a uh, a chance at being able to practice these skills so that when they're in a real life scenario, they have a better reaction time or they have a better, uh, anxiety ha- like yeah. h- handle on their, so it, you reckon it's working pretty well?
1: Uh, you know what? It, it helps. The, the issue is what we're always trying to do is present as many different types of scenarios as possible that they might encounter on the street. Mm-hmm. And then create some sort of muscle memory so that when that situation recurs, they'll be able to go back to that file in their brain and hopefully pull some of that key information out from what happens when things went sideways when they were doing that scenario. Yeah. So we'll give them that aha moment. But things have really changed because I've been doing this for 20 years. And when we first set out creating these scenarios in 2000s, They were very rudimentary. Mm -hmm. And now, um, you know, in 2020, it's completely gone leaps and bounds with the amount of information they want to squeeze into these video scenarios. And, you know, there's so much more pressure on the recruits to try to get as much information out of the clues, out of the scenario, to hopefully put in that um, that little memory bank so that when they do go out on the beat they'll be able to tap into that and hopefully it's going to help
0: them. Yeah. Kind of like a kind of like football training or sports training, you practice your tackling drill, you practice your plays, okay, we pass wide, we cut this person out, we go to the corner. Kind of like that and then so that when you do it, do it in training, you have that like you said muscle memory so that when the game comes or in this example when the real life scenario comes, they are more prepared. Yeah, and you
1: know, it's never going to fully Simulation is never going to fully take yeah. the takeover from the real world,
0: um, but I mean, technology is getting—it it is getting better, and mm-hmm. we're able
1: to squeeze a lot more into these types of scenarios. Yeah, but it puts a lot of pressure on me because now I have to dig down deep, and you know, I have to really uh, confer more with those specialists, and uh, you know, we have to get everything absolutely right, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and then run it through a lot of tests to make sure that we did tick all the boxes. Because sometimes, you know, what what you think is great, once you put it in front of the students, um, things go sideways, and it's like, ah, I didn't see that. And yeah, we got to go back to the drawing board.
0: So the so the students can fail these, um, these virtual re uh, not realities, but can they like let's say they get to a situation where they're meant to de escalate, and then they. In this scenario, they escalate and they say, "Okay, now I'm now going to use my pepper spray, or now I'm going to use yeah. my taser." Is that like a fail, and then you just reset again, or how how does that work?
1: Yeah, you know that's a really good question. Um, I actually uh, I've seen quite a few different forces, you know, from the UK to the Middle East to North America, and e- each agency has its own sort of pass and fail. But ninety mm, okay. percent of them will not fail the student. Because you learn from your mistakes, um, what they want is for that student to understand the correct protocols on when those types of things should happen, when they should have used a taser, when they should have used uh, chemical spray, if they really should have fired their weapon, if they did fire their weapon, can they account for all the uh, the rounds? Yeah, you'd be surprised at how many how many rounds are unaccounted for during a live fire shooting. So. It's trying to make them aware of all those situations, and not necessarily fail, but go
0: away thinking about what's just happened. Okay. Um, usually,
1: it's called an after action report, so once they do the, the, the scenario, it might only be a minute 20, and then all of a sudden, they're gonna have an, action, uh, an after action report that might take 20 minutes because now they're asked all those important questions. What did you see? Explain You know what happened. Tell me what you said. Was that justifiable?
0: Like a debrief. Why did you
1: react this way? And I've actually seen um, grown men uh, trainees cry. They just break down because there's so many different aspects to this scenario. They just thought, oh yeah, I'm gonna stand in front of this video screen. But all of a sudden there's all these consequences and you can see it sink in, and they just break up because they realized that you know what what they did um, ha- has uh, consequences.
0: Yeah. So what countries? That's a really good. Uh, yeah. This. I feel like I'm opening a a box of questions here. So, what countries have you trained with um, with this simulation scenario? Oof.
1: Wow. So. Basically, I started out in the UK
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, back in 2000, and we handled most of Europe. Then I moved over to the Middle East for about seven years, so I started handling a lot of the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And in total, I think there's about 30 countries that I dealt with with these simulators. Wow, uh, but each one has has its own sort of um, setup. Um, processes and protocols like in North America, you know, they've they really come on leaps and bounds with how they deal with types of situations. Now there's a, a lot of emphasis on de escalation yeah. and, and understanding the mental health of the suspect. Whereas in other countries that I've worked in, it's um, shoot,
0: shoot to kill, regardless. I was going to ask so you that. Were, sorry? I was gonna ask. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, John. I was gonna ask you that actually about um, how the training differs in the different countries. I know oh, that's yeah. I know that's really broad because you've been to thirty countries, but as a as like a rule of thumb, so to speak, what do you think is a country that has the furthest to go? Uh, you're also welcome not to answer that if you if you don't want to. But uh, what do you? What country do you think has the furthest to go still with their? getting up to like a a global standard with the with the training
1: that's you know that's a really good question actually uh i think probably the worst the worst one and and i I hate to say that was bangladesh okay um i was up there um probably 2008 and you know they made the right steps by that they they were, they were given a grant by the UK government to purchase one of these simulators. So my job was to go up there and try to help them break out of this habit of just shoot regardless of what the person did. Mm-hmm. So it was actually the, um, I guess the, the special forces, they're called RAP, Rapid Action Battalion. So once I introduced them to the simulator and started going through, you know, how it is as a tool, because I'm really providing the hammer and nails, it's up to them to build a table. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, stepped them through this, held their hands, and then you could see their eyes lighting up saying, okay, you know, we see there's other ways to do this. But it's very easy to fall out of uh, practice. And, you know, shortly after we found they weren't using the simulator anymore, and uh, they were back to the business of just you know, shooting first, asking questions later. Wow. So they, they've they got a long way to go. And, you know, again, it's to do with a lot of other issues too, infrastructure, uh, you know, poverty. There, there's a lot of other barriers that they're, they're up against.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And do you feel that um, with the kind of work you do, there's a bit of a stigma around um, – like now that I have a sort of better understanding from what you've explained it to me, but if you were to to tell someone what you do, do you find that there's a bit of a stigma around providing defense? Um, yeah.
1: A, yeah? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so I've, I've, I've attended a lot of defense exhibitions over the last 20 years, and mm-hmm. I remember one instance, I was actually in the Middle East, and... Some somebody came up to me and they said, oh, this simulator teaches you how to kill people. And uh, I said, to him, no, it, it doesn't. It's trying to teach people how to de-escalate situations. Mm-hmm. But that just stuck in my mind because it was the stigma of, you know, we, we've got a simulator here where you can actually interact with it, but you can also use less lethal weapons and so forth. But he went straight to, this is a simulator on, on how I can uh, hurt people more. And it was that that just really insulted me because you know we're we're trying our best to help these countries develop and get out of that stage, but that stigma of this is just training people how to kill
0: people better. Yeah, was just so insulting. Yeah, but I, I've seen that before
1: um, in other instances where people are like, oh, this is a shooting simulator, and you know I am like the most anti-gun guy. But I can't explain. I can't explain the situation to people because usually it's above their head when we go into that whole simulation discussion.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. But
1: it's just one of those things that constantly it comes up now and then, and it's uh, it's just hard to explain, really.
0: Yeah. So, is there like a an overbody? Is there like a regulator sort of regulating or watching or saying you can train these countries and not these countries, or is it? sort of at your discretion and the company's discretion, who and what, uh, police or, or contractors you train in what countries is that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, Mm -hmm. um, the company usually bases its decision-making, uh, from the U S state department. Okay. So the U S state department will lay out guidelines on who you should and shouldn't be dealing with in the world, for instance, North Korea and if you are found to be selling training simulators or whatever to these countries then the company can be heavily fined it's also down to the company to decide whether or not they want to be selling things to other countries for instance with our simulator um it's a tricky one because it's not like it's a missile that you're you're sending over to the to the country um but They treat it as such, our company. So they're very careful about who they send these things to.
0: Yeah. um, Because,
1: you know, they they want to make sure that whoever's getting this tool uses it to its full advantage to help uh, their students and trainees um, when they have to deal with these types of situations in the future.
0: Yeah. So how long have you been in uh, in this business, and how did you start?
1: Yeah, you know, I actually, um, I started off in the UK back in 2000, mm-hmm. and it was really, it started off as just a job, yeah. I actually just finished taking a one-week computer course, and there just happened to be an ad in the, uh, the local UK paper for someone who was interested in computers, so I went down, applied, got the job, but then... Over the space of twelve months, that initial job role completely changed, and my responsibilities sort of spilled over into different areas and specialties, mm-hmm. and it completely manifested into something completely different. Something I had no idea would be impactful in today's police training. Um, it was just sort of a weird series of events, all accidental. And uh, you know, if you'd asked me twenty years ago, what yeah. Where I'd be twenty years from now, it certainly wouldn't be what I'm doing now. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I. That's life. I guess, isn't it? No one, no one knows what the future holds, and I. I know what you mean when you say you didn't know where, like, how it would have transpired or whatever. Like, yeah, totally. You can never. You can never know what's going to happen when you apply for one job or. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and, I mean, it's just weird. It's taken me on this unbelievable journey. And, you know, I'm on the forefront touching base with police and special force instructors from around the world. And I'm acting as a conduit for that next level of training, getting an understanding of local cultures, needs, methodologies, and, you know, having the opportunity to take all that and then combine it with my instructor and content development skills and videography and producing something meaningful that um, can
0: actually be used for, for training students. Yeah. So it's it's unbelievable, you know, it's just been one hell of a journey. Do you find that um in the countries or not all of them, but I guess some countries uh that there's a really bad breakdown between what the public want and what the police do or like what the police action is, like is there a bit of animosity you find towards police in some countries more than others?
1: Yeah, uh you know, I've, I've seen it a lot. Um I've seen it a lot in Saudi Arabia, I've seen it in Libya, Mm -hmm. Um, mostly Middle East countries, poor Middle East countries and Southeast Asian, sorry, um, Western Asian countries. Yep. Not so much in Europe or North America, um, but but I have seen it and, you know, it's one of those things where you get in, you try to provide a tool that's going to help them and Help the public understand that yeah. you know that the, their local forces are going to try, but there's only so much you can do. Yeah, you know. But I do see that animosity, and um, sometimes it's it's not nice.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Like, um, I think that the policing industry, or I don't know, I don't know if you can call it an industry, but the the job of being a policeman or police woman, you can get it right 99.9 percent of the time. And you only have to get it wrong that one, 0.1 of a percent, which is, you know, one in a thousand, and it looks so bad. And then that can just paint oh, yeah. paint the whole the whole industry with a, the same color brush, so to speak. And I think it's like, what other industry, like, let's take Elon Musk, for example, a strange example, but he's launching all these rockets. And when he's trying to re- yeah. re-land the rockets, he has blown up, you know, a dragon rocket, a falcon rocket on re but, oh, yeah. but yeah. people still believe in, in in Elon Musk and in Tesla and SpaceX because they're like, oh, well, he's he's had a few bad things happen, but he's had a lot of good things happen as well. So they still yeah. have that, that good faith in the company and in the business. But if you had that same approach with the police, for example, and they had, let's in brackets, put, you know, one bad landing or one bad incident, it it's it looks her, like so bad. And I think that's because, oh, yeah. do you know what I mean? I almost feel sorry for like a lot of the police people around the world that have like what you're saying about, they're doing this training where they're stressed out. They can perhaps cry afterwards. or they say, where do, where, where were your eight bullets? Where are you? Have you accounted for them? And they can't, I think being a policeman or policewoman in any country would be so stressful, maybe not in Iceland or something, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, there's so much to deal with. Like, because people are flawed. I yeah, well,
1: I I saw a situation like this. It was the City of London Police in the UK. Yeah. And the I can't remember it was as a shooting on one of the subway stations. This was back in early two thousands. Yeah. And the police were getting such a bad rap,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they had one of our simulators. So the Mayor of London uh, said, "Okay, look, I, I want you to invite members of the public. I'm going to be there." Get some media down there, and we're going to have some police police officers and we'll go through the, the simulator that you guys have. So I went down there to make sure everything was working and everything was fine. Yeah. And they actually had um, audience members, just normal civilians, come up and go through the, the simulator. And basically, all of them shot the wrong guy.
0: Oh, man. Purely
1: by accident, because the guy pulled out a cell phone
0: instead of. You know, a gun or something. Yeah. They shot that guy with the cell phone,
1: and then the lesson there, the, the 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 brief was, look, this is what our police officers are going through every day. You know, you guys are seeing the bad side of things, but this is some of the training that they've been going through. These are some of the things that can happen, and this was back in 2000. You know now there's this new paradigm shift with the onslaught of social media and cell phone cameras, where officers are getting oh. a beating at the short end of the stick. So, yeah. you know for sure there are bad apples out there, a small handful, but it's those bad apples that get the media attention, and, and not the thousands and thousands of good deeds.
0: That's right. Yeah. They're
1: carried out every day that are unknown.
0: Yeah, and I think right? I, it's, I think what you're that's that's such a I'm so happy you brought that up because that's like such a good example of. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to start this podcast was to just, to just to shine a light on so many different industries and different people and that whole walk a mile in, in someone else's shoes I think is so important and people are getting a bit more divisive and we're quick to judge and we have this insane appetite for just cancelling people at the moment and we've kind of forgotten how to, to walk a mile in each other's shoes and... and and to imagine what it oh, is yeah. is is like to be a policeman or policewoman who's dealing with this um, this level of stress. Oh, it's, it, like... it's
1: crazy! Even last year, since COVID, um, I, I've seen so many couch experts that get all their information from YouTube. They don't get two sides of the story, and all of a sudden they're judging. Yeah. And that you just see it all over the place and. It's like it's like a cancer. Yeah, you just can't stop it. It's crazy. Yeah, it really is just mind blowing.
0: I'm happy you said one-sided story as well, because that was that was the other thing I was gonna uh gonna say when you were saying um the police are getting filmed all the time and stuff. And I'm not saying this goes goes on all the time, but there's absolutely nothing to stop someone. For example, let's say I would never do this, but let's say I spat in the direction of a policeman, and then they came over and said, "Hey, what are you doing?". I can just whip out my phone and say, "Oh, they're harassing me. They're harassing me," and I I haven't cap yeah. I haven't captured that initial ten seconds at all. And then as soon as that goes online, the the story or the narrative that people are watching is so one sided. So uh, I'm trying to learn to yeah. be to be better at that too. And um, I don't know. I just I think it's it's it goes a long way to to pay things to be a bit more critical and pay a bit more attention to to if if you want to know about something like ask questions i guess is is where i'm going rather than just judge
1: that's it and you know with the simulation side of things basically you know we're trying to eliminate yeah. um, those bad apples as many bad apples as, as we can yeah. but at the same time we're trying to also um give officers that chance to understand that there was a chance that they may be under scrutiny from social media or some of the cell phone camera. And I've had to create scenarios for them to prep them for these types of situations. Yeah. So that they understand what's going on. They understand the right response to say to someone who's filming them so that it doesn't get taken out of context. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a whole completely different side of the, the field that we never saw uh, five years ago and now you know it, it's it's completely in focus that's the direction everyone's going now for the training is to try to um put all these preventative measures in to to better equip trainees with every type of scenario including these types of situations where they're going to be judged and you know how cool can they keep their cool so they don't lose it or say the wrong thing that can be held against them
0: yeah um, yeah, it's a lot
1: harder nowadays for for trainees. I I don't envy them at all.
0: Yeah, definitely. And is this some um, kind of training you do? Is it possible for countries that have a police force that don't use guns, like New Zealand or Iceland for example? Or like
1: Yeah, there's uh the these simulators I actually used all over the place, even Singapore where um you know there's a there's a heavy um uh, anti weapon, uh, type thing for civilians, yeah. much like uh, New Zealand and Australia. So, yeah. um, they are, they are up there. They're used in different ways. Uh, again, it's like me providing the hammer and nails, uh, and they have to build that table that they want, Gotcha. Um, but i am trying to give them the best hammer possible so that that table can have many facets that they can explore. Um, And, you know, that's the secret with simulation. You know, we need to be able to cover all the bases
0: because
1: we don't really know which route they're going to go down and we've got to make sure that that simulator can can actually provide that training that they need in their language with their cultures and processes and protocols, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is just – it seems like such a – it's just so – what you do is so different from the normal – Normal nine to five, like going to to thirty countries and and training uh, with all these people. Do you find that, or these police? Sorry, do you find that there's a commonality between, um, between all the places you've been in that people do. Deep down, want to do the right thing and and have the right training, and everyone is sort of on the same page with with improvement and stuff like that, or. Um. No. No. Um
1: that there are there are countries who are trying. Yeah. And there's countries who are just trying to get the best toys possible because they've got so much money to spend. But they'll never use them in their training, but they can show them to their superiors and say, Hey, we've got this training tool. Yeah. So yeah, I've seen all all manners of the uh the playing field.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um do you guys do anything else, your company, do you do anything else other than simulation? Like, do you do, uh, I don't know, clothing or boots or anything like that for police as well?
1: No, it's, it's mostly um, mission support, yeah. communication and training technologies. So things like clothing and armor and those types of things, that's, those would be other defense companies. Yeah, so we're just trying to provide. uh, Well, my little tiny offshoot is just uh, in that special area of uh, use of force simulation.
0: Yeah. Okay. So
1: uh, yeah, not well for my department anyway.
0: How so? When you go to these countries, how long do you usually stay there and train with uh, their police before you say, "Okay, you guys seem like you've got a pretty good handle on things. We can now uh, leave it to you." Like. Is it a month long kind of thing, or how long does it go for?
1: Uh, no. Usually, um, it could be anywhere from a week to six weeks,
0: okay. depending
1: yeah. on um, depending on how good the students are. Yeah. So, yeah. for instance, uh, I did a lot of work out in um, uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia.
0: Yeah. And when I went out there, you know. We were told we were going to have these these
1: recruits, these great students. But what we ended up with was basically a motley crew of of people who had no idea about computer technology, what a mouse was, um, how to hold a gun, these types of things. So basically, uh, we had to start from scratch and get other instructors to come in to cover those basics with these guys before they they were even ready to go to the sort of simulated world to help them become better.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
1: in other situations, um, like the UK SAS, I went in and we were expecting that it was gonna be two weeks, and these guys, the smartest bunch of guys I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, they had this thing down in like three days and they were great to go. So you'll get really great agencies who just grasp it, And they roll with it, and they roll with it with such such enthusiasm that you actually walk away writing things down and say, "Wow, I didn't know it could be used like this." And then it's something I incorporate later into training for other agencies. And then you know Mm -hmm. you have the other side of the spectrum where it's like, "Okay, we've got a lot of work to do because these guys are not technologically astute. We've maybe got to make this thing a little simpler for them to use." so that they can use it uh, more efficiently so yeah it's it's chicken and egg
0: yeah so the simulator is essentially like you're always updating it and always trying to create new scenarios and that makes total sense i guess it's like a you know it's like anything it always needs updating and improving if you if you had a scenario from the 1940s it wouldn't be applicable today so i i know exactly what you mean exactly yeah
1: exactly i mean one of the things that what we found that that really did change was um, PTSD, mental health, uh, and language barrier, and and humor factor uh, issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, this is why we had to pull psychologists in just in the last couple of years to to get deep down into areas such as schizophrenia, uh, autism, bipolar, delusional, suicidal. These are scenarios that, you know, we never really thought about 20 years ago, but now we have to dig down deep for each of these specific yeah. areas and try to cover all the details uh, but not in such a complex manner that a police officer has to sit there and try to figure things out because again a police officer's got maybe about 10 to 20 seconds to to quickly create a profile of what's going on
0: yeah. and in
1: the bed, decide what course of action needs to unfold. So you have to provide enough clues in these types of new scenarios as to what's going on and then hopefully have that branch out in w- with the the trainees. So, you know, we're we're going down these complex routes now and it's uh it's harder on both sides trying to create these types of things. Yeah, yeah. things have changed so much in 20 years, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess as well like what what the simulation and the training and the scenarios you're providing for one country might not always be applicable to the next country. Like you said, Singapore, for example. Oh, yeah. Like if you had someone who was training to be a police officer in America, they might have to deal with overdose or drug-induced psychosis a lot more than perhaps the policeman in Japan or Singapore or North Korea where people aren't taking you know heavy street drugs and, and going crazy kind of thing as often. So i can i can see oh, how yeah. the, the training would have to differ from country to country as well
1: well that that's it you know for instance when i i lived in the middle east um for for seven years we we had to create a lot of different scenarios based on the local cultures uh local environment uh local protocols and, and processes and methodologies you know because from uae to qatar to kuwait yeah um to Oman, each country had its
0: own different types of things and trying to use North American scenarios just wouldn't cut it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm out there creating new ones with these guys and, you know, then we go to Singapore, completely different set of parameters, Bangladesh, uh, New Delhi, each one has its own different types of situations that need to be uh, put across on the screen. Yeah. It's, it's it's a never-ending story. You've got to make sure that when you do go to one of these countries, you have to be there in the mix and fully understand that culture and what's going on, and try to create a scenario with their help, something new that's going to help them. Because yeah, you throw a you know traffic stop with Bubba from Oregon, you know, in his big truck, it's yeah. going to make absolute no sense to somebody in Bangladesh. it's, yeah. it's just crazy
0: yeah yeah definitely I'm but that's so-
1: what makes the job interesting
0: yeah it, I can do you find that you work with like some interesting people is there anyone that's you said the SAS was, was pretty amazing is there anyone that you've worked with public or private sector that's really stood out and sort of just blown you away and been like wow that was I just never yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah there's I've got two Um mm-hmm. actually I did a job in Jordan I was working at one of the special forces training camps, and I was asked to go to King Abdullah II's uh, palace because he had a simulator, one of ours. Wow. And I thought I was just going to go there to do a, a quick repair or just check it out. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they rolled by, picked me up from the hotel, drove me to the palace, and I sort of went in through the back door with the the entourage. And I uh, had to basically walk through his living room and kitchen, just like a, a it's like a Whistler luxury mansion kitchen. You know, I, it wasn't anything completely fancy. It was just, yeah, you know, nice high end. And off of his living room, he had a uh, a 25 meter indoor shooting range. <laughs> and I just walked in and the, the guard left me. And I was just messing around with his simulator. And about uh, 10 minutes later... In comes King Abdullah um, with, his, with Crown Prince Hussein, his son, and he's just in beach shorts and a T-shirt. And He's like, hey, John, how's it going? Uh, can I get you something to drink? And I was just flabbergasted. You know, I didn't know what to call him or whatever. Here I am in this guy's house. Oh, wow. He shakes my hand. He goes out to the fridge, grabs me a Coke, and then for the next two hours I'm just chatting with him and we're working with the simulator just like like a normal everyday guy. It was just absolutely mind blowing. Nicest guy, most humble guy I've, I've had the pleasure of, of hanging out with. It was just mind blowing. Yep. I walked away back to my hotel, and it was like one of those uh, those moments where you're you're wondering if you're actually imagining that it just all happened, or if you were just dreaming it. But yeah. it was completely surreal, and it just blew my mind.
0: Wow. So he had the simulator in his house, obviously. Yeah, what,
1: what yeah was it? It, uh, so we've actually, the simulator also has a marksmanship, so it will simulate
0: oh, like a shooting range okay. for
1: long-distance targets. Yeah. So he had one of these, because uh, we, we do the live fire simulators and laser fires. so that if he wanted to fire real bullets at his screen, he could, and the system will pick all those up. So he actually had the live fire, and um, yeah, it was it was just crazy and I'll never forget he had this all these collections of, of weird guns that he he'd had from around the world given to him as gifts sort of just laid out on the in show showcases around the uh, shooting range yeah it was just it was it was just weird just a weird weird experience
0: yeah well I guess that's and what you That's right. uh, sorry no no you go you go
1: yeah and then the like um, a year later when I, I didn't think I could talk that one um, I was asked to go to Russia um, to do uh, to fix up one of the live fire shooting ranges we had in the Kremlin, which I don't even know we had one in the Kremlin. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was actually President Putin's bodyguards. They actually had one of our simulators, and I had to go there and carry out some some training. But it was just that was again another surreal moment because I'm, I'm walking into the Kremlin. Uh, you know, you go through all these security protocols, and then all of a sudden you're inside the Kremlin, and you go downstairs through this uh, kind of array of, kind of a rat's maze,
0: mm-hmm. and you
1: end up in this this training area, and the, the, these big, big guys in black suits. <laughs> you know, it was uh, it was just mind blowing.
0: Did you ever feel? Crazy. Did you ever feel on edge, or like the situation was a no, bit, you bit know, dangerous, or?
1: They, in situations like that, it was. It was more of they were really humble guys
0: and just looked just really scary. Like I'm a big (laughs) guy. I'm I'm like six five. Yeah. And these guys were taller than me
1: and just these huge kind of football shoulders. And it's just guys you just wouldn't want to mess with. And I was scared to say anything to them. And then, you know, they came up, said hi. And they were just like sort of big kids. But uh, I wouldn't want to upset them.
0: Yeah fair enough i guess i guess yeah it was it was all business it's not yeah have you ever been in a situation besides those two or other ones that you did feel was was dangerous or somewhere you just didn't feel comfortable and the whole situation just felt awkward and um yeah it was
1: um there was a couple of instances there was one in libya and there was another one actually in um um, Riyadh, no, sorry, Jeddah, um, in Saudi Arabia, and the one in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, you have to go through this really complex process to get a Saudi visa. Yeah. And the thing is, once you're granted that Saudi visa, you've got a set amount of time for it to activate, and it will activate once your feet hit the grounds um, mm-hmm. during a certain period of time. So you get the visa; it says it's valid from this time to this time but as soon as your feet hit Saudi ground in between that time it will then be activated from this time to this time so when I actually went there to um the first time to do a job the um the job time frame had slipped by a few weeks so I ended up uh, arriving it took me about two days to get there and as soon as I arrived I was promptly arrested and taken off to a little jail cell what um because my visa had expired i hadn't acted it hadn't activated on the day i was supposed to be there oh and of course it's a weekend and that's and that's worth there's going nobody to... in the company answering the phone
0: <laughs> oh man
1: so it was uh it, it was a real pucker moment that's for sure
0: yeah i've traveled a lot to like to well i'd like to say a lot to i've traveled a fair bit and i've never heard of you being able to be locked up for not having a visa. Usually they'll just turn you away and fly you home. But yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, this is one of the things that is really weird. Um, they took me to the cell, but they had me sitting outside the cell mm-hmm. with the arresting officer. So, you know, he's bringing me tea.
0: Oh, it's for a bribe. Sitting
1: there. It was about a total of nine hours. He doesn't speak English. I don't speak Arabic. And meanwhile, there's two cells on the left and right of me that are occupied with these poor uh, Asian workers who have been uh, reported as absconding. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the the whole two sides of the story wasn't looked at. And these poor guys are in there and not getting fed, being treated horribly. Oh man. And here I am, you know, this privileged um, white guy, quote unquote, arrested but being served tea by this, by this officer. And, you know, meanwhile, I've got like two bars on my phone. I'm trying to buy a ticket out of there because, you know, if I couldn't, I was going to end up in one of those jail cells. So um, it was a harrowing nine hours, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. So what ended up happening? Did you get the job done or you had to sort of turn around and fly out of there?
1: Well, luckily, because I've got um, dual citizenship with the UK and we've got an office in the UK I ended up managing to uh, have a couple of credit cards that I could buy a ticket via Dubai to the UK. So uh, I actually ended up getting out that night, which is another story in itself. But I arrived in the UK. I was able to get a visa that week, and I just worked from the office that was there. And uh, the following Saturday, I was back out there and (coughs) actually bumped in the same arresting officer. Shook my head and we were buddies all of a sudden it's crazy. Yeah. Weird experience.
0: And you said something else happened in Libya.
1: Yeah, we, um, so during the early two thousands, um, I guess it was maybe about 2007, Libya was trying to get defense contractors to come in, uh, because they were trying to present the country in a more fashionable way. Uh, it was still under the rule of Gaddafi and, um, We were one of the defense companies to come in to try to help them out, but the problem was there was a lot of um, cars that would tail us, Um, we think our hotel was bugged, you know, we were always under the scrutiny of, you know, if anything goes sideways at the wrong moments, you know, we could be arrested. This was the first time foreigners were really uh, able to walk around in Libya, but under watch and it was it was quite nerve-wracking and you know it's it doesn't take long to to pick up the nice big black car following you uh, you know like three or four cars down everywhere Um, so that was a bit of a pucker moment we were there for about a week but I did get to see some Roman ruins that normally um, people would never see so I was fortunate enough to get a little positive out of that one
0: yeah yeah I I love my history so I would have taken that as a as a positive note as well Um, wow so you so Libya, Saudi Arabia um, you seem like you've spent so you said seven years in the Middle East you've obviously spent a lot of time uh, uh, there in the Middle East and in Asia as well is there anywhere that you feel that you want to go that you haven't been yet
1: yeah you know that's that's a great question actually um you know one of the countries that's on my list that i want to check off uh, and i know it sounds crazy is uh north korea yeah. uh, i'd love to go there and just check it out that's fine uh, i'm a sucker for going to weird places and just understanding the cultures
0: yeah
1: you know i get a rush out of that i'm not a guy who loves to get on a cruise ship and be jammed in there with five thousand people I want to go and explore things that other people don't get a chance to see
0: so oh, hundred percent
1: that's probably one of the places on my list
0: yeah i had i I know exactly what you mean i want to, I want to go there too, just to see what actually what it is like, what makes them tick do they oh yeah do you know do the locals know what the outside world is do they are they really as as poor as we make them out to be are they really as depressed as they made out to be are things so so colorless in all, you know, I have a million questions about North Korea and other countries as well. I I had a friend who went there, actually. She's a... I interviewed her. I think it, she was podcast number seven or eight. She's a she's a doctor, but she didn't go there as a doctor. She just went on a holiday, and she did, a like, a paid tour, and she said it was pretty interesting, North Korea. Like... Uh, oh,
1: yeah, you've got all the, the quote-unquote binders that are uh, yeah. there to make sure you see what you're supposed to see, right?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like... It, you're in, it's kind of like you're in a labyrinth and you're only allowed to go certain ways and you're not allowed to stray off the path. You know, like they don't let you go down some, certain streets. They pick you up, they drop you off and they drive you where they want to drive you. And you can only see certain things, but that makes sense. But, um, yeah. so I guess North Korea is, is probably not listed on that. U that UN list. Oh, sorry. The USA department of defense. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. But so
1: that would be my own personal, um, holiday to go to because you know what what I've been fortunate enough with the company that I, I work with is that they sent me to you know just some of the craziest places in the world from the Arctic Circle to Egypt to um, you know Singapore and I just I get a kick out of going to these places because I learn something new every time you know I, I'm, I'm a sucker for learning about different cultures yeah and then you know, being able to also utilize that when it comes down to creating training scenarios and trying to squeeze those little little subtle things in, um, I love it. It's fantastic. If you just sent me to a beach somewhere, I- I'd probably be bored
0: to this <laughs> Yeah. No, yeah, I'm. I'm the same. It's um. Everyone's different, you know. That's and that's the beauty of life. What makes one person's holiday is is not what someone else wants to do or what. One person's job is is not the next person's job um i yeah. there's there's still so much that i wanna to to talk to you about. is the training you guys provide uh only for the the public sector or is it for private as well
1: yeah you know um it's mostly for like the 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 police and military yeah, but what we did find in countries like the middle East. Uh, UAE, for instance, they wanted it to be um, more of a commercial type thing. Yeah. Uh, so, but it doesn't really work in a commercial type environment.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: if you wanted that, then you need to get a PlayStation. You know, th- this is like it's a specific training tool. So.
0: Yeah, it's it, not... it
1: really is designed specifically for police and and military.
0: Yeah, and you said before that you train the. Oh, sorry, not you train, but. Uh right at the start, you were saying that the U.S. has a list of countries. Does it tend to favor more like the Five Eyes countries, like America, Canada, Australia, Britain, New Zealand?
1: Yeah, it it, it does. There's there's a um, a few countries. I mean, including Europe also. Europe's in there. It's
0: yeah, yeah. It's
1: mostly countries that have created issues uh, in the past um you know you would think there'd be a lot of the middle east countries that, that would be on that red list but yeah. you know, there's only a few um most countries are are okay to deal with you know uh, according to the state department the u.s state department
0: yeah well you'd almost hope so honestly like it it's it's better to be all working towards a common goal and if that common goal is better training for police and better police interactions with the public that should be a a universal thing you know like so to get as many countries on board with this type simulation training to to get the police men and women to be able to handle situations better i mean i think it's you know if it can be used by multiple countries and and give them an edge to to you know have less Police mortality or better success rates with de-escalation, then that's a good thing in in my book, definitely.
1: Well, Canada's actually leading the way now. They, because um, you you have other simulator companies out there. Yeah. Um, and th- there's actually a, a tender out right now to unify all of Canada under one type of simulator training. So CBSA, RCMP, CSIS, uh, Canada MPs. Um, your, your uh, local PD um, uh, agencies, they're going to bring them all now under one umbrella, one training environment, so that now instead of having all these different agencies not talking together, now there's going to be a collaboration.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Where they
1: start sharing data and scenarios, so all the training is unified across the board. And, you know, that's obviously the best case scenario, but you know you've got that hard wall to break through because you can't teach an old dog new tricks and a lot of these
0: agencies yeah um you know they're very
1: secret squirrel about sharing data but this is a first step
0: yeah yeah i guess it's like yeah it always surprises me that there's not a more um i don't know uniform approach to things like that like if if yeah if you can give the training to everyone and everyone can sort of benefit from fearing. i know there's probably a reason deep you know that i don't understand that's beyond me but yeah it it makes sense to me to have a sort of unified approach and and a weird example would be like australia's education system is different state by state like if i want to go to the yeah. the state south of me victoria i need like a vce which is the when you graduate high school you get your vce but if i'm in my state it's called a hsc And you've got to transfer the points over if you want to change university. And part of me just thinks, why don't we just make this one big thing and have all the education for all of Australia, or you know, all the police for all of Canada is the example. Just be a bit more cohesive, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's there's that wall that always occurs. Like if you look down in the U.S., for for instance, each state. In each county, yeah, yeah, it's almost impossible to bring them under one unified uh, area of training with simulation. But Canada, it, it, they're you know they're breaking through those those boundaries. They're leading the way now, and hopefully they'll they'll set an example for how other agencies around the world do it. Because I know for a fact that. Uh, Dr. Greg Kratzick out of uh, he's a research scientist for RCMP uh, Depot in Regina. He, he's the one spearheading this whole thing. I hate using that spearheading word, by the way. <laughs> and uh,
0: it's effective.
1: He's the one that's pulled this all together. And now you've got the U.S. State Department looking to him on what training they should be implementing down there. Yeah. And you know, you're getting the CIA and FBI now starting to take notice too. So Canada.
0: It's a big experiment. Um,
1: they're really moving forward with this in the simulation world and it's it's
0: exciting yeah yeah look i, I i'm i really happy we had this conversation because i i have such a better idea now of what you do and uh you know a more clear picture and we're, we're, we're nearly at the one hour mark we're just about to oh, yeah. to wrap up the podcast the app will just run out of time but is there anything you wanted you wanted to say um to finish off
1: uh no not really i think we've pretty well covered all the bases i just hope that um you know people won't be so quick to judge uh without getting both sides of the stories out there because mm-hmm. even locally you know i see it on on whistler facebook people making uh you know harsh decisions and judgments on the police yeah on you know, the full story so maybe you know they realize there's there's complex stories behind everything, and you know they really need to get all the facts straight before uh, they make decisions and understand that there's a, a huge decision decision-making process based on what's happening. Um, you know, for that uh, officer. So you know, just look at both sides of the story, really.
0: Yeah, police. Are, police are people too. They care. At the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well. John yeah I feel like I have a lot of uh I still have a lot of I've been taking notes the whole time we've been talking and I've still got literally about 10 or 15 things that I want to touch on so maybe in a in a couple weeks we can go more into detail on your time in the Middle East or some of your travels if you're if you're open to it
1: yeah we'll do a part two
0: yeah I'd love that I really would (laughs) hey
1: Ryan thanks for your time today